Hello and welcome back to The Killer Kind. So sorry I had to skip last week. The weekend that I would normally have put out a podcast episode was jam-packed with stuff going on and I didn't even realize that was going to be the case until I put out the previous episode. So I apologize to everyone about that. But speaking of, have you listened to the last episode? I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you. So if you haven't listened, go back and do that now or stop listening or something. But it was wild. I had a few friends text me after listening to it and were freaking out. One person said they knew the wife was going to kill somebody. (laughs) They just weren't sure exactly who it was going to be, the husband or the mistress. And I will say, I found out that Mark did an interview just a few years ago, and he said that he could have been the one that Janair killed, not Meredith. He found a note from Janair saying that she would shoot Meredith or Mark. It just depended on whoever walked in the door first, which is so scary. But speaking of love gone wrong, I hope everyone had a great Valentine's Day. So let's get into today's episode. This is a disappearance case involving a couple on their honeymoon, and it does involve a cruise. And if you've listened to The Killer Kind for a while, you know how I feel about going on a cruise. (laughs) So without further ado, let's dive into the disappearance or possible murder of George Smith. George Allen Smith IV was born on October 3, 1978. George grew up playing sports. He was well-liked and a good-looking guy. Everybody said he was a ladies' man, very social and outgoing. His dad said George was the funniest guy he knew. He said the two of them would drink some beers together and hang out from time to time, and he'd have him laughing all night long. He also said that he was just a good-looking guy, that the girls would fall all over him. He had a great family, and he was set to inherit his dad's liquor store in Greenwich, Connecticut, where he grew up. His dad said that he really made this store. He was so lively and loved to talk. George was excited to take over the family business and to build it into something bigger. I mean, he really had everything going for him, and life only got better for George when he met this beautiful, young, aspiring school teacher named Jennifer Hagel. The two were very similar. They were both attractive, outgoing, and had great personalities, and they just fell head over heels for one another. George's mom, Maureen, said that she was overwhelmed with her at first because she had this dynamic personality. She was so fun-loving like him, and he was very happy with her. Both of their families loved the two of them together, and they were definitely overjoyed when the two got married three years after dating in Newport, Rhode Island in the summer of 2005. The wedding was beautiful. It was the picture-perfect wedding that a lot of people could only dream about. George's sister Bree said it was a storybook wedding, and not only were the two excited about the wedding they had planned and excited to start this new life together, they were also super excited about their amazing honeymoon. The two had booked a two-week Mediterranean cruise, stopping in Greece, Turkey, and Italy, among other locations. Just a few days later, the couple traveled to Barcelona, Spain, where their cruise ship will depart. On June 29, 2005, the newlyweds boarded the Royal Caribbean's Brilliance of the Seas, and set sail from Barcelona. 
Now, before we continue on with the story, I'm just going to point out that I covered another sketchy cruise disappearance case, the one about Amy Bradley. I highly recommend you check that one out too after you finish this one. But, and I'm just going to say this, that Amy disappeared from another Royal Caribbean cruise ship. Now, by the end of the story, you'll know the two aren't connected. However, I don't trust cruise ships. That's all I'm going to say. Anyways, <laughs> the two set sail on their honeymoon cruise. And a few days in, these two are making friends and they are just living it up. There have been a few different stops at this point. They had met another honeymooning couple that they started hanging out with pretty consistently, Paul and Galena. And it's very apparent to several people on this trip that the young couple are just in newlywed bliss and having the time of their lives. On July 4th, it was no different. The two spent the day touring Mykonos, Greece. Jennifer said that Greece was one of his favorite stops, that he couldn't wait to get off the boat that day. So it was a good day. George sent an email to his family that day expressing how much fun he was having. And he said, quote, I'm having the time of my life. Don't contact me unless the world is ending or someone dies. That night, the two did what they had done pretty much every night so far on the trip, which was go to dinner and then going to the bar for drinks and to the casino. On this particular night, the couple went to the casino with Paul and Galena, and they ran into a couple of friends that George had mainly made while on the ship, one of which was an American college student named Josh Akins, who was there with his parents. And he said in a later interview that he saw George and Jennifer at the casino that night. He said Jennifer pretty much stayed at the blackjack table while him and George stayed at the craps table. And both Jennifer and George were doing pretty well. He said at one point him and George went back to George's cabin to get some more gambling money. And he said they both had a drink while in the room. And speaking of money, a fellow passenger named Kristen Ruiz later stated that she heard George telling a few people that he had $17,000 in cash in the safe back in his room. And other people came forward saying they also heard him bragging about the money he had in the safe. Kristen said she found it pretty odd that he was telling people that. Usually, you wouldn't want to tell that to people that you barely know that you have all this money on you. So that was weird, but he was drinking and gambling. I'm sure he was just trying to sound cool and kind of fit in with everybody around him. But Paul and Galena said that both Jennifer and George got pretty drunk that night. They had all been drinking throughout the trip, and Paul said it was easy to tell that George was definitely a lightweight. He would have three, maybe four beers and be pretty drunk. But on this night in particular, George was very heavily intoxicated, to the point where his friends on the ship were telling him he should probably call it a night and go back to his cabin. Now, I'll say, Jennifer said that the two of them weren't the type to go to bars and get drunk like this, but it was their honeymoon. They literally didn't have a care in the world. It's not out of the ordinary for a couple to act like this on their honeymoon. And with that said, there is a little conflicting story as to when it comes to how drunk Jennifer was. Paul and Galena stated that both Jennifer and George were drunk, but at around 2 a.m., a couple said they started talking to Jennifer pretty casually and said that she didn't seem intoxicated at all. She wasn't talking 
abnormally. He, she was standing normally, and it seems like she was just explaining that she was there with her new husband, and they started talking about having kids one day together. She didn't seem drunk at all, just more so on cloud nine. <laughs> the couple even said Jennifer didn't appear to be even tipsy. But keep in mind, this is eyewitness testimony at 2 a.m. at a casino on a cruise ship. I wouldn't take this minor detail about Jennifer too seriously. However, the family attorney, Mike Jones, states that later Jennifer and George get into a fight at around 2.30 a.m. or so, and Jennifer storms out of the club that they ended up in and goes back to their room, leaving George behind. So keep this part in mind. But now let's jump to the following morning, because there really isn't too much to confirm what happens after that, and there's no cause for concern until later that morning when other people on the ship start to wake up for the day. On July 5th, 2005, at 7.30 a.m., 16-year-old Emily Roush on the ship woke up to go out on her back deck to take some pictures. The ship had docked in Kusadasi, Turkey, which is a breathtaking city along the coast. Do yourself a favor and Google it. But anyways, this young girl steps out onto the balcony and looks down and sees a very obvious large blood stain on the canopy that covered the lifeboats. Something that someone her age should never have to see. And she's old enough to know that this amount of blood is definitely a sign that someone has died in this spot. She said that she knew that pretty quickly. So with the help of her parents, Emily calls the authorities on the ship, and immediately the entire cruise liner is put into a sort of lockdown so that they can identify who is missing or whose blood this could belong to. They had a pretty good idea of kind of where to narrow down their search. They started with all the rooms directly above this canopy where the blood was found, and not only that, they knew they wanted to check the Smith's room specifically because sometime in the morning hours, one of their neighbors called and made a noise complaint about Jennifer and George's room. So the cruise police head to the Smith's room and nobody's there. They go ahead and take pictures of the inside of the room, hopefully to help with their investigation. And then they go to try to track down the couple. They make an announcement over the ship's intercom system asking for George and Jennifer Smith to report to guest relations or something along those lines. Once that happens, the college student Josh that was with George the night before steps outside and tells an employee that they need to check George's room if they haven't already because he had a lot to drink that night and he likely wouldn't hear this announcement. In the meantime, it doesn't take them long to find Jennifer. She was at a spa appointment she had previously scheduled for both her and George, but he was not there with her. So they obviously took Jennifer out of the spa and down to guest relations to ask her where her husband was and if she knew what had happened that night before. And she was confused. She said she didn't really have much memory of the night after she left the casino because she was so intoxicated. She said she woke up sometime around 8 a.m. to head out for the couple's massage appointment, and now she said George was not in the room when she woke up, but she wasn't too concerned because she said she assumed that he had crashed with one of the friends that they had made on the trip so far. 
It's not something he had, that he had done yet on the trip, but she trusted him and wasn't worried about where he was at the time. But at this point, a ship personnel also went to Paul and Galena's room, knowing the couple had been hanging out with George the entire trip. And they asked if they knew where George was. Paul said, we were confused, asking, what do you mean if I know where he is? And that's when they were told that George was missing. So they also went down to guest relations to discuss what all had happened the night before. And that's where they, along with Jennifer, got the news that it's presumed George might have went overboard. Rightfully so, this sends everyone into hysterics. Jennifer learned that her husband could be dead. And Paul and Galena just found out that their new friend slash somebody they were with the night before likely died or fell off the ship just hours after they told him to call it a night. Now, just because they were told that George was presumed overboard doesn't mean that they were told or made aware of the fact that there was a blood stain found on this sort of overhang down below George's room. Nor were they made aware of an official investigation being launched by the Brilliance of the Seas cruise liner. But there was an investigation, and actually the Turkish police were notified since this is where the ship was docked at the time. During this time, Jennifer is frantically calling her dad, telling him to call George's parents, and Maureen said that she was the one that got the call, and she was just in disbelief. She kept saying, no, he's got to be on that ship somewhere. There's just no way this happened. So the Turkish police board the ship and start their investigation. And of course, they want to start with who George was last seen with, while also interviewing everyone who had been with George or had hung out with him during the cruise, just to kind of learn as much as they can about him and his behavior, but also to get as much of the timeline of the night before as possible. Now, investigators were made aware of a group of young guys that George had hung out with the night before, mainly the college student I mentioned earlier, Josh Akins. Josh said that it was him, George, and three Russian Americans, cousins Zach and Greg Rosenberg, and their friend Rusty Kaufman. He said they all left the casino as it was closing at around 2.30 a.m. to go to the disco on the kind of top floor because the disco was open for another hour closing at at 3 30 a.m so investigators bring all four guys together and start asking what happened that night and they said they all left the casino together including george and jennifer now it was either on the elevator or at some point along the way to the disco that josh saw something weird happen he said that he saw the casino manager named Lloyd walk over to Jennifer and put his arm around her. And from then on, there was tension between Jennifer and George. Rusty told investigators that he remembers watching George get up while at the disco, walk over to Jennifer, and to start arguing with her. He said he couldn't tell what they are arguing about, but all of a sudden, Jennifer kicks George in the groin. And this was confirmed by multiple people that were there that night. Now, we could speculate here that it's about this man who put his arm around Jennifer. And maybe Jennifer continued talking to Lloyd 
away from George while at the disco, but we can't say that for sure. It's all speculation at this point. But it definitely does open the door to jealousy and puts suspicion on a cruise ship employee. Rusty was apparently the only one of the four guys to witness this argument, but the other three guys were in agreement that they did see Jennifer leave the club, and as she was walking out, they say the casino manager, Lloyd, followed out behind her. So, all four of them basically tell investigators that Jennifer had been flirting with this Lloyd guy while at the casino, and then he puts his arm around her, She gets into a fight with her husband and is seen basically leaving with another man. Now, the three Russian-Americans snuck in a bottle of absinthe, which was illegal in the U.S. until 2007. So, all the guys, including George, had been taking shot after shot of this absinthe. And the guys said by the end of the night when the disco was closing that George was so drunk that he was just kind of slumped down in his chair. And all the guys knew they would have to help him back to his room down on the ninth floor. And according to the ship's key entry log, George's key card was used at 3.52 a.m., which lines up with their story. However, when they are inside the room, they noticed Jennifer was not there. And the guys say that George starts freaking out. He wants to go find her, saying there's no reason for her not to be in the room. He is begging to go look for her. But again, the guys practically had to carry him up to the room. So he was not in the right state of mind to be roaming around this cruise ship by himself. There was apparently some debate over whether or not they should go look for Jennifer But supposedly, everyone agreed to help George look for his bride. And honestly, this is where the controversy surrounding the four guys' statements begin. Because all of them said they only do a brief search of the ship's solarium and then go back to the Smith's room. And the key entry log shows the room being accessed at 4.01 a.m. So, a couple things here. One... Why would you only search the solarium? Two, how did you have time to go from the club at 3.52 a.m., have an argument, go halfway across the ship to look for someone, and get back to the room, all within less than 10 minutes? That timeline just honestly doesn't make sense to me, or many people, honestly, that have looked into this case. However, all four men claim that is exactly what happened. Now, maybe it was a quick search because George was barely alert enough to function. So maybe the guys were like, look, she's not here. Let's just get you back to the room and she'll show up soon, I'm sure. I'm still not sure that's enough time for all of that, but I won't dwell on that too much here. So the guys get back to the room at 4.01 a.m. They claim they put George in his bed, took his shoes off for him, And Josh said that he went to the bathroom while he was there. And before the guys left, George was just thanking all of them over and over again for helping him back to his room and for basically taking care of him that night. The four guys claimed that they left the Smith's room and headed back to the three Russian-Americans' room and ordered a massive amount of room service and just continued hanging out. Supposedly, they ordered a feast of room service and 
And they said they ordered burgers and tuna fish sandwiches. And one of them was later quoted saying that it was like just greasy, feel-good, unhealthy food. (laughs) Which is, if you ever go out late with your friends, especially if you've been drinking, you always end up super hungry. And if you're out somewhere, you probably go to like Taco Bell and order a bunch of food from there. But if you're on a cruise ship, you'd more than likely just order room service because you can be in the comfort of your bed and have a bunch of food. So to me, it's not weird that the group of guys ordered a bunch of food. To some, it is, and we can get into that a little bit later. But for now, the guys are saying they went back to the three Russians room. They all pigged out. And then about 5 a.m., Josh walked back to his room and I think Rusty probably went back to his room shortly after. And everyone said after that, they all just went to sleep. There is a video recording of this initial interview secretly recorded by Josh's dad. And it's kind of got everybody in the lobby together. You can tell there's multiple people in the lobby area, but these four guys are being questioned mainly. So Josh's dad secretly records the conversation. And I'm not going to play it here because it's kind of hard to hear what everyone is saying at different times. And there's parts of the interview where someone is speaking in a different language. So I will leave a link to that video that has that recording in it for you to view yourself. I do highly recommend that you check that out because you can really see these guys and kind of get a good picture of them. And you can read their body language during that time. It's just very interesting to me to watch. So this room service binge session is basically the alibi for these four guys. So after questioning them, investigators turned their attention to the noise complaint call made at around 4 a.m. The man who called had a room immediately next door to the Smiths, and he was actually a deputy police chief on vacation with his wife, Deputy Cleet Hyman. He said that him and his wife were woken up at around 4 a.m. to what sounded like yelling, but kind of in a good way. He said it sounds like the type of noise that you would hear during a drinking game. He said the excited voices kind of turned into what sounded like an argument. He said nothing that sounded aggressive, just what sounded like three or four guys kind of talking over each other, arguing. He said it then sounded like the argument moved to the balcony area. And during this time, there was another couple on the other side of the Smith's room that said they also were woken up by the loud conversation or arguing. And they said they heard a young man's voice saying, calm down, calm down, George. And then Deputy Hyman said he heard one male voice that kept saying, good night, good night, good night. Like he was trying to usher somebody out of the room, if that makes sense. Hyman said that he waited a minute or two and then peeked out of his cabin door and specifically sees three men leaving the room walking down the hallway. And this is, once again, a cause for debate because why did he only see three men? Did the fourth guy stay in the room with George? Did this eyewitness somehow miss the fourth guy leaving with the others? We don't know because... He's certain that he only saw three men leaving the room when there should have been four. Hyman said at that point he had already called and made the noise complaint. 
He said once he steps back into his room, he hears what sounds like a single male voice talking in the Smith's room. It sounds very conversational, but he doesn't ever hear anyone respond to the guy talking. Then all of a sudden, it was loud noises. He said it sounded like cabinet doors opening and slamming shut and possibly even furniture being moved around. He said it was pretty loud and obvious that somebody was moving stuff around in that room. Then he said it became concentrated in the balcony area, but then there was silence. He said there was no sound at all for maybe three minutes or so, and then he said he heard something that he could only describe as a horrific thud. Security did show up in response to the noise complaint sometime between 4.20 and 4.30 a.m., but they said there was no noise coming from the room, so at that point they didn't even bother to knock on the door or check inside the room, so they just ended up leaving. So police get their statements from the couple staying in the rooms on either side of the Smiths, and they've got their initial statement from this group of guys. So next, they want to see if they can confirm the story that Jennifer left the disco with this Lloyd guy. And come to find out, Jennifer left the disco at 3.25 a.m. And Lloyd's room was accessed by his keycard at 3.25 on the dot. So there's no way that Lloyd could have left the club at the same time as Jennifer because he couldn't be checking into his room at the same time that Jennifer was seen on security footage leaving the club. It was proven that he left the disco at least 15 to 20 minutes prior to Jennifer. There was a theory later that Jennifer and Lloyd did hook up that night and plotted to kill her husband by throwing him overboard. That was obviously disproven. Both Lloyd and Jennifer have taken polygraph tests regarding George's death and both passed. And apparently Lloyd had a girlfriend on the ship with him as well, and she confirms that he was back in his room at around 3.25 a.m. Plus, it was later determined that Jennifer was struggling to leave the disco. Staff members reported that she was so drunk that she could barely walk. Two of them said they helped her to the elevator and stayed with her until she got off on the ninth floor. They watched her go right off of the elevator but she actually ended up going the wrong way. Her room was to the left off of the elevator. She was found by a maintenance worker at 4.30 a.m. around the same time of the thud noise heard by one of the neighbors on the hall. She was found passed out in the corridor at the opposite end of the ninth floor. Security ended up getting her in a wheelchair and ended up wheeling her back down to her room. Security got Jennifer back to her room at 4.57 a.m. And they later stated that the room looked perfectly normal. There was nobody else there. And there didn't appear to be a sign of a struggle. Nothing out of place. So at this point, the Turkish police and the cruise ship's own investigators had talked to everyone they could think of to talk to. They do end up doing a forensic analysis of the room as well. They photographed the room. Some evidence inside the room was taken away. Now, initially the evidence was not released to the public, but it was later determined that there were two small blood stains found on the sheets of George's bed. 
Very small stains, but it was blood nonetheless. Other than that, the room was searched and no other evidence of foul play was found. The Turkish police searched the ship, got their statements from various passengers, and were done with their investigation on board within just a few hours. The blood was scrubbed from the canopy, the smith's room was cleared, and cleaners were brought in to clean the room. And that was that. Jennifer was allowed to get off the ship, obviously not wanting to continue on this two-week cruise, but she received no sympathy from the cruise liner. They didn't help her get a flight home, and she was in a foreign country and had no idea what to do next. Her dad had to wire her some money in order for her to just get herself home. So Jennifer flies home to be with her family and to try and figure out what to do next. And the brilliance of the seas cruise continues on basically like nothing happened with these four guys under speculation still on board. So you've got this group of guys who were with another man shortly before he dies. There were several complaints made about these guys. They were verbally abusive to members of the staff. They were caught smoking and sneaking alcohol to places that they weren't supposed to. Then an 18-year-old girl comes forward. And she says that she was hanging out with these Russian-Americans at this point on the trip. It's unclear if this took place before or after George's death. I do I know she didn't come forward until after that, but it's unclear when the incident took place. However, she said she was drinking heavily and ended up back in the room of one of the Russians. And she said that she was so drunk that she was kind of blacking in and out during her time in the room. And she claims that she remembers being sexually assaulted by Greg Rosenberg, Rusty Kaufman, and Jeffrey Rosenberg, the younger brother to Zach and Greg. Jeffrey was not one of the ones in the group that had hung out with George the night before, just FYI. And that they were also recording this sexual assault, which is just horrific and disgusting. But the tape sort of come in handy later on in the investigation of George's death. But before we get into that, Once the ship finds out about this accusation of rape, the guys are taken to the ship's attorney's office along with their family, and they are told they are being kicked off the ship when they dock in Naples, Italy. The boys and their families are pissed, obviously, but they should be kicked off the ship with an accusation like this against them. But once again, Josh's dad secretly records some of the confrontation between the families and the boys. And the members of the staff that are telling them they have to stay in this room for like two days until they dock in Naples. I don't know what the deal is with Josh's dad secretly recording everything, but it's nice to have, so I'll take it. And what's weird about the video is that there's a woman in the video talking to the family saying that the FBI told them to keep the families in this room. She mentioned the FBI... A couple of times, actually. So, why would the FBI be involved in a rape allegation? To me, that doesn't really make sense. Either she's making that up or the FBI actually wants to keep them contained until they have a chance to talk to them maybe about George's death. 
However, once the families were dropped off in Naples, the allegations were taken to the Naples police, and they pretty much refused to touch it, saying the crime took place outside of their jurisdiction and nothing was ever done about this allegation, which is so sad. This poor girl had the courage to speak up about something so horrific and then basically gets the door slammed in her face when nothing gets done about it. But going back to the FBI, they do get involved in Georgia's death. It's unclear to me exactly when they start looking into it, but they do start their own investigation. They track down Josh and the Russians. They conduct their own interviews and collect their own evidence. And that's when they find a video recording taken on the ship. There was a video found just hours after George went overboard that showed the boys all out to lunch together on the ship. They were all talking and laughing about George's death. This video hasn't been released to the public from what I understand, but the Smith's family attorney was made aware of the video and he said there were some very incriminating statements made. Supposedly, all the guys were mocking George's death. Rusty made a comment about George parachuting off his balcony with no parachute. And at the end of the video, Greg Rosenberg could be seen holding what looked to be gang signs and saying, I told you I was a gangster. The FBI ends up taking the case against the boys to a grand jury. This is when they look into their alibi and the whole room service party situation. And it straight up just doesn't check out. I mean, first of all, it only takes one person to place the call to room service. That doesn't prove that they were all there. Second of all, it takes a while for room service to be delivered. So they could have easily placed the call and then all of them or at least a few of them had time to go back to George's room, do whatever they did to him and they had time to get back. Now the call logs from the Russian's room were checked out as well and calls made to the kitchen. And it did appear that a couple of quick phone calls were made from the Russians' room at 4.13 a.m., but they were super short phone calls. The calls placed didn't make it seem like there would have been enough time to place such a large order of food like they suggested they did. Not only that, when investigators checked into the calls made to the kitchen that day, there was nothing that showed a call made from the Russians' room to the kitchen And I want to say there was no calls made at all between 4 and 5 a.m., if I remember correctly. So this alibi of a huge feast was pretty much shot to hell, to put it bluntly. If they ate anything, it didn't come from room service. It definitely definitely sounds like an alibi these guys were making up and thought made sense at the time. And it, it would if nobody was really checking into it. So you've got the FBI doing their investigation. Then Josh Aiken hires an attorney, rightfully so. And his attorney, Keith Greer, gets to know his client a little bit. He even conducts a polygraph test on Josh to sort of help confirm his client's story and to basically see what he's dealing with. And he said that he passed with flying colors. However, Josh is later interviewed by the FBI again, and his attorney said that they, quote, say they polygraphed him, 
when asked what he meant by that, he said that Josh was in there maybe a couple minutes, not long enough to ask a bunch of questions like they're supposed to. And then Josh comes out of the room very upset, saying that he was told that he failed the FBI polygraph test and that it was BS. He said they were playing games with him. There's no record of what was asked from what I could find, so we may never know what took place during that polygraph test or that so-called polygraph test. And that being said, Josh continues to look a little guilty. So after George's death and after being interviewed initially, all of the guys lawyer up, including Josh, obviously, and, and they should. And they're continuously questioned over the years about George Smith's death. Josh's attorney said that he has been questioned every year since by strangers, reporters, and even police investigating the case over the years. And I'll get into my thoughts a little bit later, but I don't know if Josh is actually involved, but he definitely knows more than he says he does. It, it, it just becomes obvious that there's more to it than what he's letting on. And all the guys involved were questioned a few different times over the years. And at one point, all the guys were asked to give statements to the Smith's attorney as part of a settlement in George's estate. Before this, though, the guys were made aware that if they were questioned and their story changed even in the slightest, that they would be charged with perjury because they had already made statements under oath when their case was brought to a grand jury. Now, Josh and Zach were advised to invoke their Fifth Amendment right, basically to say nothing at all. There's a video of the moment that Josh was being questioned, and he answers every single question asked by Attorney Mike Jones with, I invoke my Fifth Amendment right. He is asked if he killed George Smith. He is asked if he was in the room when he went overboard. He is even asked if he went on the cruise with his family. Everything from your basic question to the most incriminating. Many have said this only makes him look more guilty. Mike Jones did an interview later where he said, These were yes or no questions. If the answer was no, then he should have just said no. And I personally understand not wanting to be charged with perjury, but why not answer the simple yes or no questions? And if asked about anything about George's death specifically, then invoke your Fifth Amendment rights so that you don't get charged, so that you don't answer it in any other way that could cause you to be charged with perjury. It just doesn't really make sense to me. Now, after that deposition, Mike Jones, again, the Smith's attorney, claimed that Keith Greer, again, Josh's attorney, pulled him to the side and said that he needed to look into Greg Rosenberg. And Mike Jones is like, why is that? And he said that Josh told him that Greg actually left this room service party they all had and was gone from the room from quite a while, which is a huge revelation. Now, this isn't recorded, and Josh has never publicly stated that from what I can tell, but, and honestly, even Keith Greer was asked if he ever said that, and he said no. But still, for Keith to say that to Mike says a lot. I don't think Mike is the kind of guy that's going to make that up. So, Zach Rosenberg also pleaded the fifth. However, Rusty Kaufman and Greg Rosenberg did not. That said, when asked the questions, 
Rusty said he couldn't remember in response to the majority of them, but good old Greg gave us the most out of anyone. It's not confirmed that he did anything to George, but he definitely looks the most guilty with the video cell phone footage of him saying, I'm a gangster, and and then, you know, Josh pointing to him as somebody who left the party. Isn't this always how it goes? The person that did it stays the closest to the case. The person that did it wants to talk the most. That is a common thing in true crime. If you know, you know. Not saying he's guilty, not saying he did it, but I'm just saying he looks the worst out of all of them. (laughs) Now, Greg did have to be tracked down and questioned, and he was actually found in prison. (laughs) He was at a prison in Florida, I believe for drug trafficking. I found it a little incriminating when he said that he likes expensive clothes, and that's why he was in prison at the time, because he liked to make money for clothes. One of the theories in this case is that these guys tried to rob Greg because he kept telling people he had a bunch of cash in his room, like I mentioned earlier. So, To say you're in prison because you like expensive things probably isn't something I would say when being questioned about a potential murder. Now, he doesn't really say anything incriminating, besides that, when answering the questions. However, there are a few different times where he stumbles around the answer or doesn't really make sense when trying to explain himself. And two, I heard another podcaster talk about Greg's interview and she made a good point, which was... That Greg never actually denies having something to do with George's murder, from what I could tell in the video of this interview, which is what you might expect to hear. (laughs) He kept creating these scenarios as to why he couldn't have killed George. For example, he'd say, I would have, I would never kill someone unless it was to protect my family, or I'm a good person, I'd never do something like that. Never denying it, just giving a, giving excuses as to why he wouldn't. However, when asked if he thought George's death was an accident, he said no, very confidently. He said somebody did something to him. He said somebody is lying, but he doesn't know who. But just like with the other guys, nothing more ever came from these interviews. They all failed their separate polygraph tests, but This obviously wasn't enough to prove anything. In 2015, the FBI officially closed the case, and that was devastating to George's family and to Jennifer, of course, as well. From what I understand, the Smiths family still has their attorney looking into evidence, and they are still looking for anyone who may have more information. The hard part about this case is that there is very little information out there about what all was done in the investigation, I know the crews conducted their own investigation, the Turkish police did their investigation, the FBI and the U.S. consulate were all involved in trying to determine what happened. And I want to trust that if there was something to find, that one of these groups would have found it by now. And the sad thing is, the only people who know what happened are those guys that were there with George that night. And if they never speak, then we'll likely never know what happened. But 
that's what's also hard is that we don't know exactly what all was checked out. And what I mean by that is that since the initial investigation, reporters and those interested in the case have gone back on that cruise ship specifically and have walked the halls, the same ones that George would have, walked the same route supposedly that he took that night. And they have noticed security cameras on the ship in places that should have seen George, not just in the casino security footage that is supposedly the last sighting of him. One very important camera that was there at the time of George's death was supposedly one that was pointing towards the canopy where the blood was found. We have never seen that video, nor did I find anything that mentioned security footage from every camera searched. The FBI has never named a suspect in the case, nor have they ever stated whether or not they were investigating a crime or an accidental death. Josh Aiken's attorney, Keith Greer, said in a later interview that he would like to know if there is security footage from that night to show whether or not there were four guys seen leaving George's room or if it was three, as suggested by that eyewitness. And to see if all four of them went back to the Russians' room for the room service party or not. He said that should give the answer to the question as to who likely murdered George. Jennifer Hagel remarried in 2009, but George's family has not moved on and will not give up. Back before the case was closed by the FBI, the Royal Caribbean handed over 6,000 pages of documentation, key logs, photos from the crime scene, just every bit of information possible from the time George was on the ship, including everything in their investigation afterwards. And the family said there is just one photo that stood out. One of the 6,000 pages that keeps their hope strong and keeps them going when it comes to searching for answers. That one photo was a new picture of the bloodstain not seen before by anyone else. It shows what looks like bloody fingerprints on the side of the overhang where it looks like George was likely holding on for dear life. And Maureen, George's mom, said, he doesn't deserve to be remembered as a blood stain on the overhang on a cruise ship. And she's right. So, so sad. I hope and pray this family gets answers one day. But what are your thoughts? Is it murder or accidental death? I genuinely believe it was a murder. Likely the whole robbery gone wrong scenario. And I want to say it's Greg Rosenberg. He just seems way too guilty to me. Based on the cell phone camera video showing him saying that he was a gangster. And then saying he was in prison because he likes nice things. Why wouldn't he try to rob a drunk guy that said he had thousands of dollars in his room? But why murder though? That's what I can't figure out. Sure, robbery gone wrong. But we know George was very intoxicated. Was he even alert enough to fight back and maybe the two went at it? I'm not sure, but I hope one day that we get to find out. And speaking of getting answers, I do have an update on the Brandon Lawson case that I covered at the start of this new year. 
Nothing has been confirmed yet, but the family put out a statement that on a recent search conducted by Texas Rangers, human remains and clothing matching the description of what Brandon was wearing that night he went missing was found in the vicinity of where Brandon was expected to have been. The family said that in their hearts, they believe it's Brandon. Last I heard, they were still waiting on the DNA results to come back determining whether or not it was in fact the remains of Brandon Lawson. And once we get that update and hopefully we get the results soon, I will be sure to let you guys know. But that's going to do it for me this week, guys. As always, I would love to know your thoughts on today's case. So head over to the podcast Instagram page and give me all your theories and thoughts on today's episode. I'll be back here in two weeks. Until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.